Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. <laughs> Hey. hey, what's up? <laughs> Excellent energy team. I'm Justin Burt, joined tonight by Dr. Chris Chumanchu and our producers, Jennifer Chisholm and Crystal Nora. How's it going, team? Crystal, first, how are you? Welcome back to the show. Hey, what's good, y'all? Uh, amazing to have you. And Jennifer, our first-time producer for this episode, tremendous job. Welcome to the Cribsiders team. Thank you. I'm very, very happy to be here. We are excited to have you. You put together an outstanding episode. And our guest tonight, Dr. Priyal Patel, comes to talk about palliative care, which is so much more than just end-of-life care and death care, as we talked about. But before we go into that important content, Chris, can you tell us about the show? Sure. We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. Today, we have a fantastic conversation with our guest. Dr. Priyo Patel is a double-boarded uh, hematologist, oncologist, and palliative care and hospice medicine physician at Nationwide Children's Hospital. She has a passion for medical education. She teaches how to address challenges in treating children with potentially life-threatening or life-limiting illnesses, tips on having challenging conversations, and sheds light on an often misunderstood area of medicine. I think our... Listeners are really going to enjoy this episode. Insert really bad pun here. <laughs> Easy enough. Dr. Priya Patel, we are so excited to have you. Welcome to the Cribsiders podcast. Hey. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. We we really appreciate you coming on. We we mentioned this before airing, but we're an informal group. Is it okay if we go by first names and call you Priel? Yep, of course. Excellent. So we would love to get to know you better. The audience would love to get to know you better. And I'd like to ask, can you just give us a little bit of a brief introduction, maybe a one-liner and something that you are interested in outside of medicine? Yeah. So I am a huge foodie, love food, which Columbus is a great city for that. Um, I love hiking. And we're my husband and I are actually about to take a trip to Banff next week. Canada. And Yeah. And I'm a first-time mom-to-be. So hey, there's that. Congrats. Yeah, Congratulations. Terrifying. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> it's very exciting and terrifying at the same time. Yeah. I, so I'm getting married soon and just went on my bachelor party, which in your mid-30s is very different than like the romantic comedy <laughs> bachelor party. And it's all 35-year-old men who have just had their first their you know first child who are commiserating about childcare. Uh, and it was very fun. But that that was my uh, bachelor party, but they they had a great time. They love uh, they love having it's very, the first six months. I think is very easy. So they, that's all that they could say. Um, so much sleep, I hear. Yeah, yeah. it's rewarding, right? How yeah. bad can it be? We'll, we'll yeah. be good. And congrats to you too. Thank you. So I would love to start with a question for you, Priol. And what is one place in your world that brings you joy? Home, I think the most. Um, I love as much as I love traveling and kind of leaving. And I, I'm like originally from New York. And I think it took me a really long time to consider Ohio home. And it finally is starting to feel like home. So it's, um, it's my sanctuary. It's where I can be completely unplugged and not have to worry about all the assignments and like, you know, charts and all that stuff. So yeah, I, I feel the most grounded at home. Awesome. I love coming home. <laughs> My follow-up question is, since we're talking about you being a foodie and the favorite place being home, what type of food means home to you? Ooh, well... So my husband and I cook a lot. Um, we are both vegetarian and we recently just um, bought a vegan Korean book. So we've been experimenting a lot over the past month with that, which has been a lot of fun. And then my mom and dad recently moved close by from New York also. They live 20 minutes away now. And my mom's an excellent um, Indian cook. So nice. we have access to a lot of different food, which is Sounds like a lot of spice too. Everywhere. Oh, yeah. I love spicy food. 
big jar of gochujang somewhere and some kimchi is my guess it's literally like there's a huge jar in my fridge excellent excellent (laughs) and it's fantastic Chris and I were at the Society for General Internal Medicine. I know it's a pediatric podcast, yeah. so the conference was terrible. Don't worry. Um, but I was talking about how I was wanting to learn how to cook. And he gave me such this thoughtful uh, gift that was a book of how to cook everything, which is apparently a common book. Um, oh, wow. And I've, I've read it cover to cover. And now I am a master chef. There you go. I'm not We're trying there, to but. like, we're trying to make bread, but it is, it's not going well. So we're going to leave tough. that alone for a while. Yeah. I don't know. The it's easiest the COVID bread trend. is banana bread. Yes. yes. <laughs> Quick breads are good. Yep. Great. So Should we go I'm, it, yeah, yeah, I'm excited to, to break into some content. And uh, Crystal, you want to lead us into our first case? Absolutely. So we are going to talk about Henry Zhang. He's a 12-year-old boy from Columbus, Ohio, first diagnosed with T-cell ALL 12 months ago and relapsed four months ago. His heme-onc team have tried to involve the pediatric palliative care team for several months, and Henry's parents are now receptive. Henry is Chinese-American, and both of his parents speak English as a second language as they immigrated to the United States as adults. There's been this paradigm shift within pediatrics where the importance of palliative care and hospice medicine is gaining increasing recognition. Could you briefly introduce um, us to the specialty? Yeah, of course. So the quickest way to describe it is palliative care is more of the general umbrella term, and hospice care or end-of-life care is just a very small part of the entire palliative care umbrella. The three main things we focus on are communication. So we help families, especially families with kids with chronic illnesses. We help them communicate with their teams and also help the teams communicate with the families based on what the families desire, right? Also, when there's so many doctors and nurses and, you know, therapists and all of these great staff members involved with care, sometimes everyone gets narrow in their own view, and that can impact overall communication. So we help, we call ourselves like the cat herders. So we try to like make sure that everyone's on the same page. So communication is the first thing. The second thing is honestly like decisional support or just goals of care. Um, So often, especially with serious illnesses, there's really very few times where there's a clear cut answer of like what the right thing to do is. A lot of times there's different options and each option comes with the benefit and burden. So we help families kind of sort out through all of their goals and what they desire for their child. And then we help them with decisional support as needed. And then the last thing um, we do is symptom management, which, you know, things like delirium, pain, nausea, vomiting, constipation, any any symptom that brings on any discomfort, palliative care can be consulted for that. And then hospice medicine is specifically for end of life care and palliative care. So we've had kids that we follow on palliative care for like years on it. We've had like kids that we follow for over a decade. And I think that's the most common misconception is that palliative means end of life. And I'm hoping that we can kind of clarify that over time. And maybe as a follow-up to that, when would a provider start thinking about consulting palliative care medicine? Is it every time that there's a communication challenge? Is it um, specifically, I think, to your point, when it's not end of life care, when should we be thinking about getting palliative care on board? Yeah, I think so. There's a lot of studies, both in pediatrics and adults. And then even just from experience, it's the earlier, the better. And what I mean by that is if there is a diagnosis that will eventually lead to complex decision making or complex symptom burden or will involve a bunch of different types of specialists, it's at least good to get palliative care involved. Initially, we might not see the patient all the time and it might just be like here and there, but it really helps us. One, build rapport over time. So when things are getting more difficult, what like when clinically there's decline, then at least we have rapport at this point and we know like goals of care at this point to like help navigate through those. I think the biggest challenge is for the most part, we get consulted kind of at the 11th hour, right? Like kids are really sick, big decisions have to be made, like palliative care gets consulted and you have like one session to figure out everything that you need to figure out. And I think even though that's a huge part of our job, that makes it a lot more difficult. So if there's time and if um, people know that there's going to be huge symptom burden or psychosocial burden on the family, it's always important to get us involved ahead of time, even if there's no current major issue at that point. And I think that's great trying to establish care early. 
One of the difficulties I have as a resident is trying to get over the idea that palliative means end of life. And when we bring up the word palliative, maybe a lot of the team is oriented thinking that this child is nowhere near end of life. Or when bringing it up with parents, they're automatically thinking is, you know, is the team thinking about withdrawing care or removing support? So how do you address that reluctance that we may have as clinicians? And also, how do you introduce yourself to the family in a way that doesn't just say palliative equals end of life, but really speaks to all the broad things that you all do. I think you make a really good point because it's not just families that are really nervous about that term. A lot of providers are as well. And I mean, we've walked onto units where they're like, there come the de- like death doctors, right? And like, we've heard our colleagues call us that. So I will tell you at our institution, we call ourselves advanced illness management team or the AIM team. And Usually when we first introduce ourselves to families, I'll say like, hey, we're the AIM team. It stands for Advanced Illness Management, and then explain each part of what we do. And towards the end, I'd be like, hey, we're also Cal Palliative Care. Have you ever heard that term? If you have, then we can go into like what their understanding is. And if there's any misconceptions, I'll say if you start Googling it, a lot of scary things will come. We are genuinely here to get to know you and get to know your child. And we're not here to talk about end of life because that's not where we're at. Obviously, if that is where we're at, we're very honest. Like we came here because we're worried that your child can die. But for the most part, I I try to make it very clear that, yes, we're called palliative care, but we encompass this huge array of support systems and we're added layer of support. And same thing with our colleagues. I think over time, we've been able to gain in pediatrics specifically and even in adult medicine, but pediatrics, palliative care is pretty new. And even the fellowship is like when I was in HEMOC training and looking at palliative care fellowships, there were three pediatric specific fellowships. Now there's over 20. So just within like five years, there's an exponential increase. So I think I'm not surprised that we still sometimes hit barriers of people not knowing exactly what palliative care is. But I can tell you, like, we've gained a lot of traction, at least at our institution, by sometimes forcing ourselves. Onto providers and other times, like doing it at a different angle. So, there's certain, we have trigger consults, for example. So, for certain illnesses, it's non negotiable. We are automatically built into the order set and we're automatically consulted. Other times, like for bone marrow transplant patients, we're automatically, again, consulted under the guise of like, we're going to do symptom management. And hey, by the way, we also do the other things. So, should you ever encounter complications or psychosocial issues associated with transplant, like we already know you from this angle. And I think that's helped us both from um, different providers and families gain a little bit more trust that we're not going to be there constantly talking about death. Can you explain a little bit what what are these other uh, diagnoses that are trigger consoles? Because I think one thing is in my brain, I still, I still feel it's really nebulous. Like we don't, I don't, I know I don't want to get you guys at the 11th hour, but I don't understand what's the 10th or the ninth hour. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and also know that I think I, I, I also hear that it's never too early to counsel, but at the same time, cause you know, if, if you come on early, then you say, yeah, there's not much for us to do. Mm-hmm. Everything looks good from the goals of care. You can at least give us some information and then say, Hey, we'll tag along a little bit or, you know, let us know when we reach to a certain point. But I think for, for maybe for me and for, for our listeners, if you could some more examples to give us a better gauge of what those might look like, that'd be great. I think first, the first comment I want to make is saying like, sometimes it is very confusing because sometimes I think people think we do things that we can't do. (laughs) Like we've been consulted, hey, this kid needs a bed at home. We heard you help with care coordination. Can you get them a bed at home? And like, I, I don't have access to figuring out how to do that. So you're correct. I think sometimes it is confusing. But so trigger consults, at least at our institution, would be things like any patient receiving um, a liver transplant, any patient receiving kidney transplant or essentially any organ transplant, we get consulted. Also, prenatally, if you're diagnosed with severe congenital heart diseases or like single ventricles, things like that, then we get consulted actually, hopefully before the baby's even born. And then we follow throughout the course of that baby's life. Trisomies, like trisomy 13, trisomy 18, things like that is a trigger consult, or at least it should be. I think we're getting better. And then in the oncology world, 
giving examples would be any bone marrow transplant patient, we automatically get consulted. Outside of that, like this high-risk neuroblastomas, high-risk sarcomas, DIPGs, like the really high-grade gliomas, things like that, we get triggered consulted. One of the things I think about when I'm in the inpatient world is when to call palliative. But one of the things I'm really interested in is a career in primary care. When should I think about consulting or trying to access primary care palliative options for my patients who may not be in acutely um, ill state so they're in the hospital, but if I'm managing part of their care as their primary care pediatrician? Yeah, that's a really good question because more and more hospitals are now starting to offer home-based palliative care options. So I'll tell you, our institution, we have the inpatient palliative care team, but we also have a home-based palliative care team. And we work with primary care physicians a lot on that. Um, And typically, to give you an example, let's say it's a patient with severe CP with a lot of spasticity, a lot of pain, um, a lot of feeding intolerance, things like that, then a lot of those kids will actually work with pediatricians and will also work with the home-based team to make sure they get followed over time. And one of the benefits of having that option of following outpatient through a home-based system is a lot of these children have mobility issues where it's hard for them to constantly go in and out of the hospital or in and out of even their pediatrician's office. So the home-based system, at least at our institution, the way or how it works is we have nurses that are assigned to each patient. And then we have social workers, chaplains, child life specialists, massage therapists, physical therapists, all of these great resources that can go home and provide therapies for this patient. So on the nursing standpoint, um, they can do medical visits. So at two o'clock in the morning, if a patient with CP who, let's say, has respiratory distress, you don't know if they need to come to the hospital or if they can stay home, our nurse can go out there and do an emergent visit and then help triage. Also, we offer doc visits too. Like if let's say there's major goals of care conversations going on or the symptom burden's really tough and they need a doctor to visit at home, one of us can go out there as well, which is really nice. And then on the psychosocial aspect, we have social workers that can help navigate work-life balance, right? If a lot of families constantly need to bring their child in and out of outpatient visits, they're going to miss work. And how can social work help facilitate a better relationship between the parent and the their job? Things like that. Then we have psychologists and chaplains um, that can offer psychosocial and spiritual support at home. And then we have music therapists and um, child life therapists that can help with sibling support at home, Um, massage therapists that for a child with chronic pain would be really nice if they can go home and offer non-medicinal ways of helping pain. So it really is a comprehensive aspect to care. And like I said, a lot of these patients we've had on our team for years on end. They're not necessarily actively dying. They just have a chronic illness that creates a lot of burdens and issues with mobility and pain and things like that. So I think for pediatricians, that's a really good area to partner as an outpatient. One question I have about those home-based visits is this is outside of the the hospice type care, which we a lot of times we can't think about home hospice, but this is just home-based care with a palliative team. Is this correct? Yeah. So... Our home-based system in pediatrics, you can do home-based palliative care or you can do home-based hospice. The nice thing about pediatrics is there's a thing called hospice with concurrent care, which I can get into in a little bit. But um, essentially, it's the same team of people. It's just different benefits. So for palliative care, um, you still get all of the psychosocial supports if the system allows for it. You still get that extra support, but it, it might be like hey, I don't need you every week. I might need you once a month or every two months, right? Versus hospice care, that same system is in place, but now you're going to be doing much more frequent care and much more frequent visits. So in adult medicine, if you are under the hospice benefit, you kind of forego any inpatient needs or you forego like looking into any treatment options. Um, So in adult medicine, hospice care is truly comfort care, and it's 100% comfort care. That's all your hospice benefit will cover. Thankfully, in pediatrics, parents don't have to pick. So if a patient had a reasonable diagnosis of less than six months to live, but the parents still wanted to continue certain types of treatments or the parents still wanted reversible things like infections to be treated in the hospital, 
then they can um, get the hospice with concurrent care benefit under Medicaid. And that allows the hospice piece allows you to get the hospice benefit, but then the concurrent care piece is traditional insurance. So if you end up in the hospital for, let's say, an acute central line infection, you can still get that treated without having to lose your hospice benefit. So before this, though, with the home palliative, is that covered under more of like a home health type coverage that insurance has? Or how does that work? It's similar to home health, but it is it's not like 24 hour nursing or it's not even continuous nursing. It is specifically insurance companies will have a home based palliative care coverage that they have and then they have a home based hospice coverage. So like in adult medicine, for example, if a patient with a chronic illness or a terminal life-threatening illness still wants some home supports through palliative care but wants to do treatment, then they would have to choose palliative care and not hospice. You mentioned it sounds like there's a pretty broad team of you know everything from child life to massage therapists to uh, uh, dots and nursing. Could you walk us through the approach of like an initial assessment of a new patient and how you're assessing quality of life needs um, how you're assessing what communication are the priorities or symptom management or or what team members to get involved. If there's a new patient, whether it's outpatient or inpatient, what's kind of your checklist in your mind of how you're assessing one of these patients? Yeah, so there's certain domains we want to focus on. Um, so, And we typically try to get the interdisciplinary team involved. Inpatient, it might be a little harder to get everyone to go in together. Outpatient, when they do intakes, like the first initial visit, they actually go as a team, which is kind of nice. It's kind of fun. Um, yeah. Um, but the domains are um, essentially we want to look at physical pain aspects of care, right? Or like just symptom aspects of care. We want to look at psychosocial burdens and we want to explore goals around that and kind of what the psychosocial needs are, spiritual needs. So even if a family is not necessarily religious or spiritual, there is still a really strong role that a chaplain can have, right? So we assess for spiritual distress in particular and needs around that. Structure of care, which essentially just embodies what aspects of your life will complicate how you get and receive medical care. So if you don't have a car, yet you are expected to be at your oncology visit every Tuesday mornings, like how can we help navigate through those challenges? And that's kind of what structure of care looks like. And then there's ethical considerations and legal considerations. So typically when we do our first intake, whether it's inpatient or outpatient, we start off with what's your medical understanding of what's going on? What's your understanding of how our team can help? What are worries you have? based on the information that's already been shared? What are some hopes you have for your child based on the information that's shared? What are some goals of care, right? Like what pertaining to this particular acute issue, what, how can we help you achieve your goals for your care? Also, what are some realistic expectations? For, like what can we actually achieve as a medical system versus like this is a really good goal to have, but it might not be achievable. So we want to suss those things out. And then family dynamic and structure, like how, what kind of supports do you have? You know, besides people, what do you draw energy from or what do you, what helps you make tough decisions, things like that. So our first visits tend to be very long or can be at least, which is very different from when I am in the hematology oncology clinic, right? Like those visits, I have 15 to 30 minutes to see a patient. But now as a palliative care doctor, if I'm seeing the same patient, there's really no time limit. You spend as much as like as much time as you need in that room. There is more flexibility, at least in terms of time when you're assessing palliative care goals. And one of the big components you mentioned is communication. And I think a lot of times the communication can be quite challenging when it's a unfortunate prognosis or there is a disconnect between what the providers think is the prognosis and what the family is understanding of their current situation. What's your approach or do you have any tips for for people who are not palliative care doctors to, to better start these conversations or what are the communication pearls that a palliative care expert like yourself can bestow on terrible communicators like me and Chris? <laughs> I'm sure you're great communicators. Um, I think the ba the most basic concept is just listen, right? And like assess what the understanding is. 
And I have made this mistake a million times, especially wearing my other hat, where I go into the room, assume that the family knows what I'm about to say, and just start word vomiting all this medical information without actually ever asking, hey, what have people actually told you so far? And just that simple phrase of, tell me what you've been told so far, that opens up such a great conversation because sometimes you'll realize like families have been told nothing or at least they haven't understood what they've been told. And then sometimes you, you will be surprised how in depth of knowledge they have about what's going on. So I always start off with what is your understanding of what's happening and what has already been shared with you? And I think that actually really helps frame the next questions. And then ultimately, a lot of open-ended questions. So tell me about your hopes rather than asking, so are you worried about pain right now? <laughs> like, or are you hoping to go home? It's better if it's like, tell me about your hopes. Tell me about your worries. And that's a very open-ended way of just forcing families into a conversation. One of the other things that you probably have noticed that I struggle the most with, but is a very good communication skill, is we call it the empathetic pause where you ask a loaded question, parents are staring at you, the instinct is to just word vomit and fill the silence. But honestly, if you count to 20, eventually they will start filling up the silence. And I think that's the thing I have struggled the most with the transition from being an oncologist to being a palliative care doc is how to just shut up <laughs> at times. I, I think that empathetic pause is is a great pearl. And I think leaning into the awkwardness of silence, I agree, I think has really, it's something that I, I lean into the awkward silence a lot just in my daily life. Um, you mentioned the the hopes and the worries. And I remember uh, a palliative care doc training me and kind of mentioning using that same hope worry as their own form of communication of saying, you know, I, I hope that your child's getting better, like you say, that I worry that he's going to get worse. And then I, I think the reality. So the hope is the dream. The worry is mm -hmm. the worst. And then I think, is that is that a tool that you use? Or are there other tools that you use to kind of help give realistic expectations or, or next steps? Yeah. And I think hope and worry really helps kind of assess where the family is at in understanding like the depth of the situation. So, for example, if let's say a patient with DIPG, right, a really bad prognosis like prognostic cancer let's say they're like my hope is that in 20 years my kid goes to college you can say i really hope for that as well i just worry based on all the evidence we have that that is likely not going to be achievable what are some other hopes knowing how the prognosis is what are some other hopes you have for your child and i think that opens up a really good conversation because our instinct sometimes is to be like, oh, that's not going to happen. So let's focus on something else. But if you phrase it as, yeah, I do hope, I genuinely hope that your kid can make it to college. My worry is that that's not going to happen. And based on the evidence we have, how can we help you achieve other hopes you have for your child in the time that he or she has left? And I think that allows for a lot of reframing of what is achievable. So, for example, we recently had a patient whose family said, my hope is that the cancer gets cured, but I worry that it's not going to. And then we said, tell me more about that. And they're like, well, I know that this is getting really bad. And knowing that, I asked, well, you know, what are some goals that we can achieve? What's your bucket list for the time you guys have left? And they said, we want to go to Florida. And she did. <laughs> she went to Florida and had a great time at Disney because, you know, that's where all kids want to go. <laughs> but it was I think we were able to kind of suss out like, yes, it's a really, really terrible situation, but there are still things to be hopeful for. And there are still things that we can help you achieve. I really love that framing. And even in the very beginning, when you didn't say pro versus con, you said benefit versus burden. Mm -hmm. I think so much of what you're telling us is like how we reframe these conversations and really center the patient and giving them hope and even just giving them comfort through really difficult times. And one of the things that I'm struggling with um, as I'm going through the PICU is something that we can actually take back to our case with Henry. So Henry and his family are Chinese American, and I know there can be a lot of variation across cultures in terms of culturally appropriate ways to talk about death. How do you have these kinds of conversations? And beyond just cultures, even things like Henry and his family 
English isn't their first language, mm -hmm. it's Chinese. And so it's hard enough to have these languages in our own native tongue, but even more difficult to have them when you're literally speaking different languages. And would love to see if you have any pearls on like how to use an interpreter with these really difficult yeah. conversations that you would hope that you'd be able to have in a native language, but may not be possible. That's a really good question. And it's very near. This topic is very near and dear to my heart. We're actually doing a QI project on this right now. And just on a personal level, I was born in India, raised in New York. I have parents that are highly educated, but English is not their first language. And several instances where they end up, you know, under medical care where people just assume they have no idea what they're talking about, right? Because they have a thick accent. And I think people just assume like, they're dumb at times, right? So I think through our QI project, a couple of things that we're trying to do is one, really increase the use of interpreters. Because at this point, most hospitals in America, whether it's a virtual interpreter or a telephone interpreter or an in-person inter interpreter, there are several options to use an interpreter and it should be used. And honestly, it should not. It's a non-negotiable item. One of the things I've realized is, yes, it is really it's time consuming to find an interpreter to log on or, you know, it kind of doubles your visit. So a lot of providers are still not using interpreters. And I've had situations where, I mean, we had this one kid go through three years of cancer treatment. And the week he died, his mom had no idea what the name of his cancer was. And she said, no one has ever like we use interpreters, but she said the people who were providing information about the cancer diagnosis had seldom used an interpreter. And if their interpreter was available through the telephone, it was a wrong dialect and like no one caught them. So that was very unfortunate. And that's probably the worst case scenario. But unfortunately, that happens more often than we realize. Um, so my first advice would be for any person who does not speak English as their first language, an interpreter, at least for the first visit should be brought in. Even if the family said, like, it should not even be a question. Like, I usually just bring them in because some families will actually say, like, I don't need one. And then you realize, like, 20 minutes into the conversation that when you start talking about, like, really heavy medical details, they probably would have benefited one. So at least for the first visit, I always take one. And then that gives me a good understanding of how much they can communicate in English or not, right? The second thing is, as or another piece of our QI project is honestly to assess the interpreter's cultural awareness about how to talk about death. So one thing we realized is we did a survey where one we assessed palliative care understanding and the understanding of what the palliative care team is amongst our interpreters, and we realized the understanding is very poor. So we've now done more sessions with the interpreting team to talk to them about the palliative care domains and um, what it means to get palliative care involved. Because a lot of languages, there's actually no translation for palliative care. There's no word that translates into hospice or palliative care. Another thing that was very interesting is in palliative care, we emphasize the need to use language like death, dying, just direct language. Because when you start using euphemisms like past or gone, families get really, really confused. And as much as the word death and dying can be scary, it's very important to use those words. And we realized that only 30% of our interpreters were actually verbatim interpreting that out of their own cultural fear of upsetting the family. So we've done a lot of education around that. And also, a lot of people, providers are afraid of using those words. So then when providers say your kids, we are worried that your kid will pass from this. If you interpret that into a different language, it might not be a clear one-to-one -one interpretation. So the more direct, the better. Um, also, I think people have the poor habit of then talking to the interpreter and not to the patient. So usually our recommendation is put the interpreter out of sight from the patient's like direct vision. And then if when you're talking to the patient, make eye contact and use like direct statements like, hey, how are you feeling today? Or what are your thoughts on this? Rather than turn to the interpreter and say, hey, interpreter, can you interpret this? I feel like we could do a whole episode on that oh, too. Yeah. I think there's just so much of like using shorter you know, sentences, of making eye contact, mm -hmm. of using clear vernacular. And I... I always struggle with that. And there's, yeah. you know, I think when the patient keeps turning to the interpreter to discuss something, 
I feel like I'm doing something wrong. I want to be like, mm-hmm. no, no, no. Like I'm, yeah. I want to be the one having a conversation with him. Yeah. And I think one of the, this is probably the simplest thing we can do that we realize at least at our institution, we weren't doing a lot of these interpreters were walking into like crazy tough conversations without even knowing the patient's diagnosis or even the name. They said a lot of them were only told the room number and the unit. And we just assumed that they would know. So we would go in and start having goals of care conversations. We, I literally had, when I was an oncology fellow, I had an interpreter like whale when we told this family that their kid had cancer to a point where we had to stop. And the family, the dad was comforting the interpreter. Uh. And I think that was on us, right? Like we never prepared her. Um, and a lot of times now my practice is like, I'll tell them what's happening and I'll say like, are you comfortable with having this tough conversation? Because if they're not, then you have to give them credit for being honest and like switch out. Yeah, I could talk about this on and on, but there, I have lots of thoughts on this. And um, yeah, and I think I've it's- appreciated all of those thoughts. Yeah. They're so wonderful. Yeah. And I think- Again, just even the prioritization you have on caring for your team um, as having these conversations are really important. One thing I want to go back to is that you said even for families who are not religious, they can benefit from a chaplain. Can you expand on that? Because I've, I've had some tough conversations. I'm in the picky right now with families and they'll say, oh, I'm not religious. And so I don't want to get chaplain involved. And I've seen the benefit that it's had for some of my patients who are religious. And I was just wondering, what do you mean by like, you know, when I think about spirituality and I think about religion, um, can you just maybe explore a little bit more of that with us? Yeah. So at the end of the day, it is a family's choice. Some families will say, I just don't need a chaplain right now. And that's fine. But so our chaplain, her take is she's the one member of the team that does not have to focus on medical data. If a family is constantly getting bogged down with inundated with medical data, sometimes it's really nice to step back and talk about a really nice TV show that you watched or what you're going to have for lunch, right? And it's a very therapeutic intervention. And obviously, like our psychologists do a lot of therapeutic interventions, but the chaplain allows for a different take and a different like informality at times. So we've had families where they're so skeptical. They're like, we don't want to be preached at. We don't want to be converted. And we're like, why don't you just meet them once? Meet our chaplain once. See if you're open to it. And if you never want to see our chaplain again, that's completely fine. And some families have actually utilized our chaplain more to talk about other distress, like, you know, stressors or things like that. So that's kind of the what I mean by like, you don't have to be religious or even spiritual to like benefit from a chaplain. It is a really good resource for a neutral party. Also for end of life care, regardless of your religion or faith based traditions, they can help funeral planning. And they also are at least at our hospital, they're also the ones that do bereavement counseling. So in that realm, they're very important part of the team. Thank you for that explanation. Yeah. I think that's a it's really helpful for me to also have another way of how to present chaplain care for our patients. One thing I do want to make sure that we're centering on is our patient. And I know a lot of our conversations is focused on what we're saying with the families, but what kind of questions and concerns have you heard children express about their own serious illness or life-limiting diagnosis? Um, and how do you ex- speak to them about these experiences and what they may experience and the fears, concerns, hopes, or worries that they may have. Mm-hmm. I think it's an array depending on their age and also depending on the family's comfort of having these conversations with the child. Typically, like grade school and older, they have some concept of death and dying, whether it's a concrete concept or an abstract concept, but they have some concept of it. So we get our child life specialists involved pretty early on, especially if parents are struggling to figure out the right words to use to explain something like dying or even something like cancer treatment and things like that to kids. So our child life specialists are specifically trained in child development. So they have great ways and they have great tools that they can use to help in an age appropriate way, tell them like how serious the illness is. They even create books or so for example, let's say a child was going to get a tracheostomy and now you have to explain to a seven-year-old that they're going to have a hole in their throat with a tube down, right? That sounds terrifying, but they'll get dolls. They'll get, I had one that loves Baby Yoda and the (laughs) child life specialist taped a trach on Baby Yoda and brought it to the child and said, see, like, this is what it looks like. You can feel it. You can insert it, things like that. So they have really cool ways of helping children 
kind of cope with their medical illness in a very age-appropriate way. Um, and that even goes for older ch- kids, right? And for older children, especially teenagers, it's um, an interdisciplinary system that we use to have these conversations. First and foremost, if they have understanding, even if they're below 18, I try to get the parents out of the room. Because usually kids are so freaking pure and just amazing, and they will try to protect the adults and the adults are trying to protect them. And then ultimately, like nothing gets resolved, right? Because no one wants to talk about the scary things. So we gently encourage families to give us time to talk to the child alone, or even our psychologists. They use, I just last week, our psychologist was like, hey, you like the Wii. I'm going to come back when your mom's at dinner and we're going to play the Wii. And he he's this eight-year-old kid that talked about dying and how scared he is of dying. And now he's relapsed for actually like the 11th time. So he was just saying how he's scared of not doing treatment because he's scared that his family's going to think that he's giving up and he doesn't want to hurt them. But he's tired of going through this. And that all happened over a game on Wii, right? So. I think there's um, a lot of different techniques to be used. And honestly, it's not only on the physician to have those conversations, like pull in your social workers, pull in your psychologist, pull in the child life therapist, um, and they can all help in their own way. And for those types of discussions, I think it seems like, you know, from an adult palliative care perspective, it's very much almost like a dying with dignity or like this good death or, you know, how do you want to go and that it doesn't have to be, you know, fighting for every step. And for in pediatrics, you know, what, uh, in your experience, what constitutes a a, quote, good death? Or how do you kind of explain getting individuals to to really highlight end of life care uh, preferences when they're developmentally, you know, when they're an eight year old, when um, any thoughts, I'm curious, just general experience of what that, what that must be like. Yeah. I that's a really good question. I think defining good death is so personal and individualistic. And one of the biggest mistakes I think as providers we make is have our own definition of what a good death should be and if the family doesn't prescribe to that definition then immediately say like that's not a good death. And we have been dinged on that multiple times. Um and the amount of moral distress that it causes like the amount of time I have, I will never get back trying to deal with provider moral distress and my own moral distress is sometimes much more than the actual parental or patient distress. So I think first and foremost, I think the I, I definitely have my own definition of what I would want my death to look like. But that doesn't mean that every family has to do that in order to define that for their child. Right. So. I'll give you an example. So I think people just assume that palliative care will come in and absolutely convince a family to make their kid's code status a DNR, do not resuscitate. There are families that, for a lot of reason, they just need to see that every stone has been turned and that everything has been tried. Even if they understand the futility of it, they genuinely need to see that something was tried so they don't have parental guilt later on. And in those families, it's not our job, nor is it our place to be like, no, we're going to definitely try to get this DNR. Obviously, then there's cases of futility, medical futility, where you also don't want to do harm to a patient. And that kind of gets into an ethical dilemma that we, you know, for a different podcast. But for the most part, really meet the family where there are. And get them to understand like what the clinical situation is. And then based on that, they are allowed to make whatever decision that they want to. And we as providers have to honor that. And I think that's probably some of the hardest things to do. And (laughs) I'll tell you, like this past two weeks, we've had a situation where I swear the family is less distressed than everyone else involved in that care. And the distress comes from every provider's definition of what a good death should be or what good care looks like. And that definition is not the same as a family's. And the family's just like, we're we're fine with this. <laughs> like, we know we're going to lose our child, but this is what we want. And this is what is going to make us feel like we did the right thing for a child. But we have hours and hours of conversation each day as providers to try to, like, simmer down our own moral distress. I would love to hear more about that too and just how you and your team process 
some of the most emotionally charged work, I think, you know, pediatric palliative care. Everyone I know who is in that field is 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 a true saint. How do you separate, you know, is it something where you come home and shut it off or is it just something that it's just so meaningful? Is it, are you meditating? Are you one of these people who has like a lot of self-care, just uh, coping mechanisms, like ready to go toolbox? Yeah. What, what are some things that you kind of use to address some of that moral injury and distress that is your job of, of, of a daily palliative care specialist? I think if my team ever heard you call us saints, they would just laugh out loud because <laughs> they're going to be like, you should hear. No, um, what I just it's it's funny because you should meet our team and you would be like, mm, no. <laughs> um, so we at least our team, we're a very sarcastic bunch. And I think we find comfort in humor. So we do use tasteful humor at times, at least behind closed doors. We also do things, I know this is going to sound horrible, but we have, we used to do these sessions called Death and Donuts, where it would be a weekly psychosocial session where we would bring desserts or donuts. And then we would literally talk about what we found meaningful that week, like what gave us the most pride in our job that week. And also like what were some of the difficult situations? And specifically, if there were a lot of deaths that week, how did they go? Or like, what distress did they bring? Or did they bring any distress? Right. And I'll tell you, like, compared to when I was in training, let's say for hematology oncology versus palliative care, my now husband noticed early on that I stopped talking about stressors, like work stressors, um, when I entered palliative care. And I think the reason for that was we have so much space to talk about it and just digest it at work where I don't feel like I need to constantly bring it home, which is really nice. And I think that speaks a lot to our team as well. Like we have a lot of informal debriefing sessions and then we also do formal debriefing sessions, um, especially after really tough cases. We just, it's built in. Like we have psychosocial rounds once a week with well, that's led by our psychologist, our social worker, and our chaplain. And that's where we go through not only the patient psychosocial needs, but then also the team psychosocial needs. And like, I'll be honest, some people hate talking about their feelings, and that's totally fine. Like, that's how they find self care by not talking about it. And then, like, there's people like me that I just love talking about my feelings. So it's a little bit of both. That's, I think, one of my friends, um, asked us a question when we were getting together for a resident debrief, Katie, and she was like, where do, where do you take these stories? Whenever you have these experiences, where do the stories go? And for y'all, it sounds like, you know, death and donuts or maybe talking with someone. I'm a big mm -hmm. advocate for therapy um, yeah. and being able to process. So thank you for giving us a little window into what your team does. Yeah. yeah. And we, we've started offering it. Honestly, our team's small enough where we don't have the bandwidth to debrief with everyone over the hospital, like across the hospital, but at least for residents, because we've realized like, like if you're in the PICU and you've had some tough case after tough case after tough, you literally don't have time to debrief as a PICU team, right? You just have to go on to the next. And I think that's AIM has been called, our team has been called a lot of times to debrief with the residents and just talk to them. And we've done like informal sessions with them. And also you asked about like self-care techniques. I eat my feelings and it's wonderful. And I do a lot of yoga. <laughs> but yoga. Like it. That's personally like it gives me a lot. And some days I just come and watch like Avenger movies with my husband and it's good enough. <laughs> so. I like all you have to have a lot of different things in your toolbox, right? Yeah. When you're approaching um, really different patients in different situations. And one of the things that we prioritize here at the Curbsiders is, is trying to figure out how do we make sure that we are providing equitable care and progressing health equity in all realms of clinical care, including palliative care. And so can you comment on any type of racial disparities or just disparities based on socioeconomic factors that impact a level of care? Things that we as providers can be much more conscious about either as we're consulting palliative care or communicating with our patients about the benefits of palliative care. So we also have a bunch of QI projects on that because <laughs> there are obviously like there are racial and um, economic disparities that we face every day with um, patient care and clinical care. So specifically, I will say, for example, non-English speaking families, just statistically throughout, like not just in Columbus, but if you look at all of America statistically, they get late palliative care or no palliative care more than any other group. 
And a lot of the reasons are because one, people aren't consistently exploring goals of care. Also, a lot of different cultures. So I'll tell you, like in the Indian culture, it's a very paternalistic culture when it comes to medicine, where in India, if I went to the doctor and asked, like, tell me my diagnosis, tell me all the options, they're going to be like, you don't trust me. I'm just, you have to take this medication. Just do it, right? So like, it's a very paternalistic way of practicing medicine. And for some cultures, it's actually beneficial because it kind of gets the decision-making burden off of the family's hand. But obviously for other cultures, it's really tough because you want those options. You want to have informed consent. And for non-English speaking families, I think we just assume what they want a lot of times and just do things rather than actually explore with them. So I would say that's a big one. Financial disparities are really tough, especially in lots of parts of Ohio. I'll give like local examples. People don't have transportation. Um, Ohio is not great for public transportation. So people get labeled as the parents that never show up to their oncology appointments or to their nephrology appointments when indeed they're really, really trying. But either they don't have transportation or they don't have the financial means to constantly take off work. So I think we draw, as a medical society, sometimes we draw conclusions that are not fair. And it's really hard to then break those barriers down for different people, right? And then also, I think kind of just looking into um, like minority population, depending on cultural norms and how they communicate, sometimes I think people draw conclusions of, are you intelligent or not? Are you a good parent or not? And also just biases amongst like, if you are not showing up at bedside 24-7, then obviously you're a bad parent, right? And those biases are really, really tough to get rid of. But I think at least locally, we've been trying to do a better job with one, assessing what the biases are and then creating plans that help mitigate that. Priya, I was just wondering, um, sort of one one thing that we didn't have time to touch on that I was a bit curious about is what your approach is with assessing prognosis or likely prognosis with patients and, and also, I guess, part of it, sort of how you communicate with families about it. That's a really good question. The first thing I will tell families is doctors are poor prognosticators, especially the longer, statistically, the longer you've known a patient, the worse your prognosis skills are, especially in the oncology world. And there are a bunch of, um, there's a lot of literature out there for that. However, typically prognosis is based on multiple factors and multiple clinical factors. So things like nutrition intake, urine output, bowel movements or bowel sounds, uh, perfusion, pulse rate, respiratory rate, things like that will help us gauge, have a better understanding of when you're entering active phase of dying. So usually when I talk about prognostication, I never give an exact time. I'll say it's weeks to months, days to weeks, hours to days. And I'll always say, like, your child could surprise us. And we have been surprised multiple times. But this is my best guess based on the symptoms that I'm seeing. I um, Maybe shifting focus as we, as we start to think about wrapping up, I was thinking about self-care. I feel like there's a lot of debriefing media consumption that can occur with uh, death and dying. And there's a ton of books on death and dying, whether they're stories or narratives, there, there's movies, there's TV series. I was going to see, do you have, this is what, uh, I'm just very excited to ask this question. Do you have a favorite book about dying? Do you have a favorite uh, media topic about dying that uh, yeah. you'd recommend as our pick of the week to listeners? So I'll do a book and a movie. Movie. I'll start with movie. The um, Farewell is excellent. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of it. It's um, Aquafina is in it, and it's actually one of her more serious roles. Oh, Interesting. Yeah, it's mostly I know exactly in, what you're talking about. Oh, it is fantastic. And I think so the story, it's the directors, their grandma was diagnosed with cancer in China in real life. And kind of talking about different cultural norms in China, the family had decided and the doctors had decided that we're not going to tell grandma that she likely will die from this cancer or even call it cancer. And Aquafina's character is who the director is in real life now goes from being born and raised in New York City to now having to go to China under the guise of a wedding celebration, where in fact, they're going because they think their grandma's going to die. And it's a really I, I love that film because I think one, I could relate to it on a cultural level. I think the Indian culture is very similar. Um, and two, it was a perfect reminder of 
you might have one way of thinking about what a good death is or what informed consent is or what defines good care. And in a different culture, it might be different. And I think the transition of seeing Aquafina's character kind of come to terms with that is beautiful. Um, so highly recommend that film. It's fantastic. And it's it's actually has a lot of food in it and a lot of humor <laughs> in it. So it's a lot of it's fun. And then book wise, maybe this is a cliche answer, but When Breath Becomes Air is probably yeah. one of my favorite books. And I think from a provider perspective, it was really, really interesting to read how a provider's impact, like own personal illness journey defined or helped define his perception on what death is or how to communicate with patients and families. Because I think he does a really good job in the book explaining like, hey, before cancer, I could go in and have a five minute conversation about a person dying and feel like that's completely fine and worry about the melting ice cream in the fridge versus like now I understand on a personal level what impact a conversation can have. So I think that would be my book choice. Nice. I Death Be Not Proud is one of my favorite books of all time. And I feel like it's very it's a PDF. It's about a reference to the poem, but um about a pediatric death. And it's uh something that has stuck with me for a long time. And um the oh my God, what's the movie that uh, it's a book that just turned into a movie by John Green. Oh um <laughs> Like stars falls in our stars falls in our stars. stars. Oh. There we go. There we if go. That, there we go. If that book doesn't make you want to be a pediatric oncologist, oh, yeah. <laughs> care I, doctor, will, I don't know. John I will Green say was actually from, a chaplain. Yeah, mm-hmm. at a hospital. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Out of all of the like teeny bopper romantic <laughs> fantasies about cancer books that are out there, that, that is by far. Yeah, that is mine too. I love it. Right. Um, I think fall in our stars. Like across the board, I think pediatric oncologists have agreed that it has the most realistic approach to like what actually happens in cancer. Nice. Which I, yeah, I really enjoyed that book. I think it's fantastic. This has been great. I think that's a nice uh, uh, kind of closing things. Um, we've talked about a lot about the, some of the misconceptions of palliative care, the importance of palliative care, some tips for uh, addressing some of these challenges when kids have complex illnesses. Do you feel like what are some of the major take home points that you think are important for listeners to walk away with. Palliative care does not mean that you're only there to talk about death. That would be point number one. Don't be afraid to consult palliative care because of your own moral distress. I think a lot of times providers will say, like, I'm not consulting them because I don't believe what they do. And I think that's unfair because you would never say that to an oncologist. You would never say that to a cardiologist, right? And then ultimately, just listen and communicate openly without asking like ask open-ended questions. Don't necessarily just keep hounding them with closed-ended questions. And I think you would get a better version of their story. And anything that you want to plug, anything that we should direct our listeners to, to to check out? I I will plug in Farewell again. I think it's a great movie. (laughs) Great. Also, Onward, Pixar has done a really good job lately. Onward and Frozen 2, really good concepts of like death in terms of a child. Like child. Spoiler alert. Sorry. At this point. (laughs) If you haven't watched it, it's your own fault. (laughs) Bad pediatrician. Uh, This has been really wonderful. So, so Priel, thank you for for sharing your time, your expertise. I feel like we took away a lot from this conversation and and are just so grateful for for you to join our team and and tell us about uh, palliative care. So so thank you so much for for joining. No, this was great. It was a lot less intimidating than I thought it would be. I was like, Oh, but good. no, it we're, was yeah. great. You guys are. We're awesome. not an intimidating group, right, no. Chris? Yeah, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, let's grab this coffee first week of July. <laughs> yeah, I'm jealous. Well, Crystal and Justin, I can you zoom gotta in. Come. We'll bring a donut. Yeah, yeah, we'll yeah. be there. The, yeah. the weather in we'll Columbus up. is pretty warm right now, so everyone should come. <laughs> hey, all right, that can be the plug for Columbus. That's the, the pitch of the week. Is Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> we actually our sponsor of the week is Columbus. Yeah, sponsor of the yeah. week, Columbus, Ohio. It's literally uh, just uh, this week. Then it's all yeah. downhill. <laughs> this has been another episode of the Crib Siders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly knowledge food formula feeds newsletter on our website at thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. 
A special thanks to our producer team for this episode, Crystal Nora, Jennifer Chisholm, and Angela Zane, our showrunner, Sam Mazur, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I've been Justin Lee Burke. I've been Crystal Kamtoshuku Nora. <laughs> I've been Jennifer Chisholm. And this has been Chris the Chew Man Chew. Thank you. Good night. Find you guys later. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.